0: Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm your host, Sarah Dung. I am a MedPeeds ID fellow currently living in Boston. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest. Like usual, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de identified for learning purposes. I'm lucky to say that today's guest is an old friend of mine uh, from training and my time as a chief resident at Nationwide Children's. Uh, So, this is a really great mini reunion for me. Um, I would like to introduce Dr. Rebecca Wallahan, or Becky. Becky went to Indiana University for medical school and then moved to Columbus, Ohio, where she completed both her pediatric residency and pediatric ID fellowship training. She is an assistant professor of pediatric infectious diseases at Nationwide Children's Hospital and The Ohio State University. She is also the pediatric residency program director and vice chair of education for the Department of Pediatrics. Thanks for coming, Becky. It's nice to see you. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, I would like to start by asking, as everyone's favorite culture podcast, um, if you could share a little piece of culture that brings you happiness. Absolutely. So I
1: am a total murder mystery fan. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love listening to murder mystery podcasts, like true crime. My favorites are My Favorite Murder
0: I will say you are not the first person who true crime and murder mystery comes up. I don't know if that's an ID trait or just people in a pandemic trait. (laughs) Well, we'll jump into the case. Uh, Our console question today is uh, otherwise healthy girl who has fever and hepatosplenic lesions. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background. We have a seven-year-old previously healthy girl who is now admitted with recurrent fevers over 39 degrees Celsius and sort of malaise and fatigue as her uh, predominant symptoms. And so this has been going on for about three weeks or so. Prior to admission, maybe two weeks ago, mom took her to the pediatrician because of these symptoms. Um, You don't have access to the records, but mom says she was diagnosed with probably a UTI, sent home with five days of oral amoxicillin. Um, So she takes the amoxicillin, but really doesn't change or improve. Um, And she continued to have these fevers about once a day or so. Mom noticed that as the fevers continued, her appetite dropped off and she was a bit concerned that her daughter was losing weight. And then about one week prior to coming in, her daughter had started having intermittent sort of peri-umbilical abdominal pain. So they actually went to a local urgent care first, and she was not febrile at the time, was told maybe this is just constipation and to go home, kind of supportive care type stuff. Um, And mom said, you know, she wasn't febrile there, but when she was checking her temperatures at home, she was consistently getting 101 Fahrenheit for most of the days over this two to three week course. And so mom said, in my gut, I just knew something wasn't right. So she brought her into the Children's Hospital emergency room to be evaluated. Outside of what we just talked about, she's otherwise doing well. She doesn't have headaches, shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting, rashes. Even though her energy is low, she still, you know, isn't interacting normally. She just doesn't seem totally back to her baseline. Um, And she's an otherwise healthy girl, had a normal childhood developmentally appropriate and was up to date on vaccines. And so in the ED you have a chance to examine her as she's sort of transitioning from the ED to the floor. She is in no acute dis- distress, but appears a little bit tired. Her oropharynx is clear. She doesn't have any ulcers or lesions, no cardiac murmurs. Her lungs are clear. Um, her abdomen is soft. It is tender sort of in the right upper quadrant. And she does have some mild hepatosplenomegaly based on your exam. Um, And she doesn't have any rashes right now, but she has one small papule on her left forearm. And then you check for lymphadenopathy and don't find any obvious big lymph nodes. And so sort of in this transition period, coming into the ED and then being admitted, she has an abdominal ultrasound. There's no appendicitis, but she does have hepatosplenomegaly with multiple small hypoechogenic hepatic lesions. Um, And then there are some enlarged lymph nodes at the splenic hilum with a few scattered splenic lesions. And then her initial labs, her Y count was normal. Her CBC actually overall was normal. Um, Her CRP was eight, which is milligrams per deciliter. Her ESR was 100. Blood cultures are sent off. And so you know, she is coming into the hospital, but the primary team really wants to hear what you think, what could tie together these fevers, these new lesions she has. So I thought I would see how you're processing this case and what you might be fishing for in your social history.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So this is um, a great case. And I think one that brings up a lot of possibilities and a really broad differential diagnosis. So First of all, she's had fever for about three weeks. So, I, you know, that puts her into the fever of unknown origin category or FUO, which, you know, I think about infectious causes, autoimmune or rheumatologic causes, and then malignancy or oncologic um, causes. And right now, you know, she could fall into any one of those those categories. And so um, we'll, we'll need to do a little bit more digging and get a little bit more Information. So, I'll tackle the infectious causes first um, because I think what I'm trying to sort out is a what was going on initially with that urinalysis that made her primary care provider want to give her amoxicillin for suspected UTI. Did she have pyuria? Was there um, did did she have dysuria? what was going on there. I also um, want to learn a little bit more about kind of her epidemiologic and social history because I wanna sort out, is it that you know these hepatosplenic lesions are associated with what's going on right now with this fever and abdominal pain, or is it something that is totally unrelated? You know, I live in the Midwest and practice in the Midwest, where we see a lot of things like histoplasma, where you know everybody has pulmonary nodules <laughs> with calcifications, and you can find some incidental, you know, splenic calcifications. And so I'm trying to figure out: are those two things related, or is it just that she has calcifications and she has something totally different? So I want to get a little bit more history about travel for her. So, you know, has she traveled abroad? Was she born here in the U.S. or was she born um, outside of the U.S.? And specifically, I'm thinking about something like tuberculosis, which we know can cause splenic calcifications um, and lymphadenopathy. I am, like I said, thinking about histoplasma. Typically here, I think more about pulmonary histoplasmosis, but we know that it can cause some splenic calcifications. And so I'll want to learn a little bit more about kind of their home life. Where do they live? um, Any chicken coops or does she like to go (laughs) spelunking? (laughs) Um, uh, Although I have never seen a case, I think about Brucella. Um, And, you know, is she eating unpasteurized dairy products? Um, If we think these things might be unrelated in terms of the abdominal pain and fever and then the splenic calcifications, I think about, you know, typhoid fever. If she has traveled, I would think about Yersinia, um, specifically Yersinia enterocolitica and kind of a pseudo appendicitis type picture with mesenteric adenitis. Um, you know, and we think about that if she's been eating chitlins, which, you know, in the, the South, I understand that's a delicacy. I've
0: never tried it myself. I am from South Carolina, so I knew about chitlins before. <laughs> but have you eaten chitlins? Uh, once. I will say, but it's like the favorite question that people will uh Quiz you on when you're a med student. It's like one of their favorite questions. I feel like. Yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely. Um, and then I'll want to ask a little bit more about pets and any animal exposures at at home. Um, you know, do does she have any um, cats? Are there sheep or cattle or other things? You know, do they live on a on a farm? Um, And so those are kind of the big questions that I'm going to ask. So travel, pets, food history, what kinds of activities she likes to do, um, just to kind of get a little bit more epidemiology.
0: Yeah. Um, And so we're going to go visit the patient and her mom. And so for the past medical and HPI stuff, mom basically confirms all these things that we talked about. Um, And so she lives at home with mom and a younger brother who's four. Uh, They currently live right on the border between Kentucky and Ohio. And it's summertime right now. She's due to start second grade in the fall and has had no issues in school over the past year. Let's we're going to say this is (laughs) pre-COVID, you know, so we don't have to deal with the school question. Um, (laughs) uh, She and her brother do go stay at their grandma's house during the day while mom's at work. Mom works in a restaurant. Um, Grandma's house has been going under some construction. She has had chickens in the past, but not recently and says that the patient would not have been around the chicken or chicken coop or anything like that. Mom and both this patient and her sibling are U.S. born. They have no known TB exposures. When you ask mom, the only thing she says is, well, I have this like one friend who had a pneumonia. I'm not really sure what it was. I mean, I don't think it was TB. Um, And I think if you're an ID fellow and you haven't heard that history, (laughs) you will. Um, Sounds very familiar. um, And they do not have any pets at home. I would ask if and what you would start if you are thinking about empiric antibiotics and then sort of how we should evaluate her now that we have a little bit more social history and the imaging findings and the exam from before.
1: Yeah. So I think um, part of the question about whether or not to start empiric antimicrobial therapy really depends on how she looks. If she is otherwise stable, um, not in, distress, hemodynamically stable, then I would advocate for actually holding off on antibiotics because we really have no idea at this point what we are treating. And I don't want to compromise our diagnostic yields in the future. And so as long as she's doing well, I would say we we hold off and kind of see what sort of diagnostics we can obtain. And one question that I'm going to um, ask first or that I'm going to do first is I'm going to go talk to my friendly radiologist and find out a little bit more about these hepatosplenic lesions.
0: What I will say is that she did start having higher fevers when she came in. And so because of that, she ended up buying herself some empiric antibiotics because everyone was kind of worried how she was looking. So she started on vancomycin. But despite that, she's still having fevers. She is clinically stable, um, and your blood cultures don't have anything yet to date. All you have right now is still just the ultrasound. There was sort of some conversation about whether or not to do a CT scan, um, but it wasn't clear how much of a difference it was going to make. So right now, all you know is basically like hypoechoic lesions in liver and spleen. But what do you think? Would you have pushed for a CT scan in this patient based on the new fevers?
1: I don't think so. You know, I think that's a good question. It's one that we're often faced with, you know, what is or what's the ideal imaging technique yeah. for the liver and, and spleen? And um, I might, you know, I'm not a radiologist, so this <laughs> might be inaccurate. But I think that for um, many splenic and hepatic lesions, ultrasound is actually great. And it's, you know, mm. we're avoiding radiation for the child, which is nice. And if we're not going to gain any additional information by a CT, then I would say that, you know, ultrasound is, is great. I think the the times when I do um, move to ultrasound is when we're looking for um, an intraabdominal abscess or fluid collection um, that maybe we need to define a little bit better because it's not visible on, on ultrasound or not completely visible. I'm sure that there are certain organs or certain <laughs> diseases for which C- CT is better than ultrasound. I'll be honest, I don't know what those are right now. <laughs> I would have to look that up.
0: Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I think you can tell size and sort of distribution. So these are sort of scattered throughout. They're all quite small. And at least at this point, there isn't any obvious calcifications. Um, So like you're saying, we did get some sort of useful information from there. Um, And so we have blood cultures that haven't uh, grown anything so far. Any thoughts on other ID tests that you would send now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the fact that there aren't calcifications makes me think about, you know, is this granulomatous disease or are these micro abscesses? And I think I would start by testing for all of the things that we've already talked about. So I would do a fungal antibody panel to look for histoplasmosis and some of the other endemic fungi. Um, I would do um, either an interferon gamma release assay or place a PPD to test for tuberculosis. Um, Although, well, actually I take that back because, (laughs) um, you know, if there's not calcifications and these are really, um, if they're micro abscesses, then I I don't know that that would um, be very high yield. I always think about cat scratch disease, um, even if there's not cat exposure, because I've had a number of of cases where there's no cats or kittens at at home. So I would send serology for Bartonella. And then I um, would think about, you know, these other things like Brucella, But if there is really no good history about, you know, unpasteurized dairy products or specific animal exposures, then I might hold off on on that.
0: The we sent off those tests. So and I will add she was HIV negative. Um, Her histoplasma and other fungal testing has been negative. I'm going to speed that up because I feel like in real life that takes much (laughs) longer. Um, She did happen to have a PPD place before um, kind of in the process, so that was negative. And a lot of the additional sort of less likely things like Brucella, at least based on her history, were nonsense. Because she didn't have a history of sort of unpasteurized dairy or obvious animal exposures. She does ultimately get a biopsy that shows granulomatous inflammation, and you kind of suggested that, that we're thinking about uh, granulomas. I guess before I reveal the final diagnosis, does does that pa- initial path help you at all? Or do you feel like your list is just the same as it was beforehand?
1: So it's a little bit different. So with a negative fungal antibody panel, I think Mm. histo is pretty much off the table. You know, you could, I guess, in theory, have a negative um, antibody test, but it's really, really unlikely. I think that makes me think a lot about cat scratch disease. When I hear granulomas of the spleen, I think cat scratch. Um, I would also think about some non-infectious things. You know, I would think about sarcoidosis. Typically we think about that being more pulmonary granulomas, but in some patients they can have splenic or even hepatic lesions. Um, I would expect them from what I know from the adults to be asymptomatic. But um, it's possible that, you know, this could be something non-infectious. There are, I'm sure, many other rheumatologic granulomatous diseases that I'm not thinking about. I think about the ones that affect, you know, mainly the pulmonary and uh, renal systems, um, not so much the hepatic and splenic. But I think, you know, I'm sure that, the, that, that they are possible, um, but I still think, you know, cat scratch is pretty high on my differential. And then I think one thing that we didn't necessarily touch on is that, you know, we're assuming that she is an immunocompetent host. Um, If she if we got a history about recurrent infections, or if we suspected that she might be an immunocompromised host, I think that brings up, you know, a whole separate list of -hmm. of possibilities. (laughs) And I would start thinking about, you know, atypical mycobacterial infection like MAC. Um, I would think about kind of lots of other atypical infections.
0: Yeah, and we did a I am realizing now that several hopefully our listeners don't mind several of the peds cases that I've done have sort of centered around lesions like this. And um, one patient had CGD and had a very different presentation and then uh, Toxicara was one of them. And, but again, it really depended on the, on the host and that helped sort of change where things were on your list. And so the, Path, although we saw these granulomas, it doesn't clearly identify an organism on special stains, um, including those sort of specifically looking for mycobacteria and uh, fungi. But around that time, you finally get. <laughs> you, I, You'll notice I left off one of the serologies. Um, she, The patient actually has very elevated Bartonella henselay titers. So her IgG is one to over 4,000. Her IgM is one to 200. And, you know, grandma came in and said, you know, I did foster some kittens a couple weeks ago. And I don't think she got scratched, but maybe she did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So you have your maybe exposure here and this diagnosis of um, hepatosplenic Bartonella infection. So I thought we could first pit stop and talk a little bit because I made this case as hepatosplenic Bartonella that kind of came as prolonged fever, fever of unknown origin, Um, plus or minus some abdominal pain but I think when we talk about cat scratch usually in like teaching conferences and things like that this is not the usual presentation so I thought maybe we could start with talking about what you usually expect in other patients when you're talking about Bartonella
1: Yeah, cat scratch or Bartonella is one of my favorite infectious (laughs) diseases. I love it. Um, And I I love it because I think it's one of those infections that can affect so many different organ systems that it's kind of always on your differential So when we classically think about Bartonella infection, I think all of us think about lymphadenitis, right? Um, You know, I think the clue that maybe I didn't touch on in your history was that there was a little papule on her arm, right? It was. (laughs) Um, And I think I completely, like, overlooked that. (laughs) I think in reality that may really happen, though, too. (laughs) Um, but, you know, it starts with a little papule at the site of inoculation and then regional lymphadenopathy at whatever lymph node, you know, that site drains to. Most commonly, we think about kind of the neck, either cervical, submandibular, submental or axillary um, or ep- Epitrochlear, because those are the the most common areas that kids are being, you know, scratched or licked or bitten or whoever (laughs) they are getting um, infected. Um, You can have lymphadenitis in other areas like inguinal or popliteal. Um, It's just not quite as common as kind of the neck and the axilla. Um, I also, so, you know, we do see a lot of cases of hepatosplenic cat scratch. Mm -hmm. um, And so that is definitely a fairly common presentation in, in kids. And the other things, you know, you think about eye involvement, you can have... Neuroretinitis, you can have Perinode's oculoglandular syndrome, Mm -hmm. you can have encephalitis, you can have radiculitis, you can have um, endocarditis, you can get MSK or musculoskeletal manifestations. Um, specifically, I think about vertebral osteomyelitis. Whenever I see vertebral osteomyelitis, my brain immediately goes to cat scratch disease. And then um, osteomyelitis of kind of the pelvic girdle is another common musculoskeletal manifestation. Um, but I think it can just affect, you know, multiple organ systems. And so, like I said, it should really always be on your, your differential.
0: <laughs> yeah, that covers so many locations. Um, for listeners who are less familiar, I wanted to point out that oculo oculoglandular syndrome consists of follicular conjunctivitis or infection of the conjunctiva or eyelid or nearby skin, plus ipsilateral lymphadenopathy, So classically, it's preauricular, but technically it could be submandibular or cervical lymph nodes and fever, usually at the inoculation site of periocular tissue, such as a cat bite or a lick near or in the eye. Um, And so you would sort of think of a red eye on one side, maybe watering of that eye or foreign body sensation. It's a pretty atypical form of cat scratch disease. Um, unfortunately, serious complications from local extension are pretty rare, but anything with the triad or a collection of symptoms seems to end up on tests a lot. Um, so, just in case people want a little bit more info about that, there are two other entities really outside of cat scratch disease that I thought I'd mention just since we're on the topic of Bartonella, and those are bacillary angiomatosis and bacillary peliosis. And so, bacillary angiomatosis results in these vascular proliferative lesions, typically in skin or subcutaneous tissue, often with constitutional symptoms. Whereas, peliosis causes reticuloendothelial lesions in visceral organs, and most commonly, we think of the liver. This is something that we think of in maybe immunocompromised hosts or patients living with HIV. We're not really going to get into that one today, but I just to sort of round out the full spectrum of different types of clinical presentations of Bartonella. All right, and changing gears a little bit, you briefly touched on diagnosis by sending serology earlier. I was hoping you could talk to us about Bartonella testing and diagnostics. Um, And this may be a little bit of a leading question, but do you expect those tests to cross-react with anything? Are there any other um, pearls to keep in mind when trying to diagnose Bartonella?
1: Yeah. And I think that's a great question and a great teaching point. So Bartonella is a very fastidious organism, right? So it doesn't grow in culture very well. So we really can't rely on blood cultures or tissue cultures in our diagnosis. So serology has really been the the mainstay of diagnosis for Bartonella and that's typically an immunofluorescent antibody assay or IFA. And um, for the IgM, so like our patient, usually any IgM positivity is considered indicative of an acute or a recent infection. Whereas for IgG, if it's above kind of the 1 to 256, that's considered indicative of um, acute or recent infection. But there's also this gray zone for the IgG of like, you know, between 1 to 64 and 1 to 256, maybe it's Bartonella, maybe it's not. Um, And so it's usually recommended that if you're in that kind of gray zone and you have a high clinical Suspicion. You can actually repeat titers in about two to four weeks to see if there's a rise in your antibody titers. Um, the The question about cross reactivity is a good one because there is some cross reactivity between Bartonella henselae and Bartonella quintana, which is the cause of trench fever um and so the sensitivity the the specific, specificity is pretty good for um for bartonella despite that that cross reactivity i think the sensitivity is um a little bit lower than the specificity i couldn't quote you the exact numbers right now <laughs> all right but
0: <laughs> we would look it up in real life <laughs>
1: I think the other thing that has kind of been a more recent development, maybe in the past decade or so, has been the use of polymerase chain reaction or PCR for the, the diagnosis of Bartonella infections. And we are fortunate enough to have an in-house Bartonella PCR here where I work. Um, And it has been a lifesaver in some cases. It's wonderful. Um, But I I think we have to be careful about when we use PCR for the diagnosis. You know, we really shouldn't routinely be getting blood PCR. The sensitivity is not very good. Um, And it's more helpful on tissue specimens, So, you know, valvular tissue for endocarditis, um, you know, some lymph node tissue that's obtained during biopsy. um, But that can be an adjunct diagnostic um, for, for Bartonella.
0: Yeah. Um, and I thought I would mention that the we always talk about and starry stains and pathology. And I specifically uh, did not have a, you know, we didn't have a positive stain for this. But I thought it's useful to point out that that silver stain, uh, even if you saw bacilli, would not necessarily indicate <clears throat> or be specific for a, Bartonella Um But I think the histologic changes would be consistent. So... I think most lymph node biopsies would have sort of lymphocytic infiltration and these granulomas, which may, maybe not right in the beginning, but later on can have necrotizing um, changes. And so that we talked about the sort of clinical differential diagnosis, but on PATH, if you got that back, you would still be thinking about a couple of the same things, like mycobacterial infections and tularemia in the right person or brucella in the right person so i thought i would point those out even though i didn't give those in this (laughs) case um i think that uh is a nice differential to have as well because they usually overlap your clinical and your um uh path but sometimes you get called because something shows up on path first
1: yeah i think that's a really great point
0: yeah um, all right. And then treatment. So this patient was on ceftraxone and still fevering. Um, I wanted to see how you would treat this patient. Um, maybe there's a reason they were still fevering through those two.
1: Yes, yeah. <laughs> Um, so obviously, you know, vancomycin and ceftriaxone are not the ideal treatment for Bartonella infections. Yeah. Vancomycin obviously has no activity yeah. against Bartonella. Ceftriaxone might have some activity, um, but it's not considered, you know, primary or ideal treatment. Um, sometimes it can be used in combination with, with other things, but it's it's not our first line therapy for Bartonella. So typically... Um, you know, for just lymphadenitis, m- I would often use azothermycin. and I think that's um, very common that for for most people that they would use azothermycin as monotherapy. However, when we talk about disseminated Bartonella, Most practitioners um, will recommend kind of dual therapy or combination therapy for disseminated disease. And that is often a macrolide like azithromycin with rifampin for hepatosplenic disease. You can also think about trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole plus rifampin or doxycycline plus rifampin, um, but those are all effective treatments for the, the treatment of disseminated disease, with the exception of endocarditis, in which case you'll want to do um, typically doxycycline plus an am- aminoglycoside.
0: Oh, I see. Um, and then how do you decide how long to treat these patients who have disseminated infection my understanding is that we don't know exactly, um, but I thought I'd see, you know, if you had this patient, would you re-image to decide when to stop? Would you just use their clinical presentation, um, you know, how you would approach that?
1: Yeah, I was hoping you would tell me how long. Be
0: the <laughs> I'm the host. Oh, I get to ask the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think,
1: you know, that is a, a tough question. I usually start off with 10 to 14 days of treatment and then see how the patient is doing. I'll repeat inflammatory markers. You know, I would expect that the CRP should be pretty much, pretty much normalized and the ESR should be significantly improved. I don't know that resolution on imaging is necessary to stop treatment um, because I think that the imaging findings can really lag behind clinical improvement. And so I would start with, you know, 10 to 14 days for hepatosplenic disease and then kind of go from there. Um, for other disseminated infections like um, encephalitis or neuroretinitis will often go longer. Um, so for neuroretinitis, I think the recommendations are anywhere from four to six weeks. Um, so it really depends on the site of infection and how the patient is, is doing.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I those I think the the big sort of buckets of things I want to talk about with Bartonella, but I wanted to see if there's any other things you think we missed or, or sort of summary points that you think we should point out.
1: No, I think this was a really great case. Um, and I thank you for allowing me to join you tonight. Um, I think one thing to always keep in mind is that we don't always get that history of cat or kitten exposure up front. Yeah. And there are also some cases where there is truly no known exposure to yeah. um, any kittens. And so even without a history of kitten exposure, Always keep Bartonella in your differential, whether it is exposure to dogs or just people can get it. We think from the flea exposure directly. Um, yeah. So always keep it in your differential, even when there's no kitten history. Yeah, I
0: we I I know I've said I. Pick on kittens in the show and cats. I think they're very cute, but uh, they're very good for ID cases. They are.
1: I'm a dog person, so you can pick on the cats all you want.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us and covering all these uh, big points for Bartonella. Um, And we'll put some summaries of all this on the website so folks can read more about it if they have questions.
1: Well, thank you so much
0: for having me. This was fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Check out com for more info about the podcast, our post-episode consult notes, which have links to references, and a big collection of ID infographics. You can find Febral on Twitter or Instagram. And as always, please just reach out if you have a topic or guest suggestions or if you'd like to contribute to a future episode. Um, Stay tuned for more info about our summer series and thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.